Good morning. I've not had a chance to meet you personally. My name is Joey. I serve as one of the pastors here, and it is my privilege to open God's Word for us this morning. We pray as we turn our attention there. Father, we come to you this morning, and we ask that you would give us hearts to receive the Word, that we might look, see, savor Jesus the Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. My train wreck conversion. The title of an article written by a woman by the name of Rosario Butterfield. She was a tenured professor at Syracuse University who, in her own words, said she used my post to advance the allegiances of a leftist lesbian professor. The article went on like this, the word Jesus stuck in my throat like an elephant tusk. No matter how hard I choked, I couldn't hack it out. Stupid, pointless, menacing. That's what I thought of Christians and their God, Jesus, who in paintings looked as powerful as a Breck shampoo commercial model. As an academic exercise, Rosario started to read the Bible And something changed. She writes, I read the Bible the way a glutton devours. At a dinner gathering, my partner and I were hosting. My my transgender friend Jay came to me in the kitchen and said, This Bible reading is changing you, Rosario. She warned. With tremors, I whispered, Jay, what if it's true? What if Jesus is the real and the risen Lord? She goes on, I fought with everything I had. I did not want this. Then one ordinary day, I came to Jesus, orphaned and naked. Jesus triumphed, and I was a broken mess. Conversion was a train wreck. I did not want to lose everything I loved, but the voice of God sang a sanguine love song in the rubble of my world. I weakly believed that if Jesus could conquer death, he would make my world Right. Rosario was an unlikely convert to Christianity. So was I. At the age of 26, Jesus sought me out and rescued me from the shallow dream shrinking my soul. Christian brothers and sisters, no matter what, guess what? You too are an unlikely convert. For my friends not trusting in Christ, this could be your story too. It's certainly the story of Zacchaeus, the man we meet in today's passage. In the first chapter, nine chapters of Luke's gospel, the focus, if you remember, was primarily who is Jesus? And then there was a turn, and the primary focus became what does it mean to be a true follower of Jesus? And today we look at this last section of teaching before Jesus enters Jerusalem. And he knows what awaits there. He knows his death, his crucifixion is just before him. And in many ways, our verses for today summarize all that we've seen in the gospel of Luke. Here's the main idea of today's passage. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And he calls us to join him on that mission until he returns. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost and calls us to join him. 
Let's look at that. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. That's the first 10 verses of our passage. At the beginning of chapter 19, we meet Zacchaeus. Look what verse 2 tells us. He is a chief tax collector. We've seen tax collectors in Luke before, haven't we? Tax collectors were those Jews whose job was to collect money from fellow Jews to give to the Romans. And here's the thing. The more they collected, the more they got to keep for themselves. So put it, to put it lightly, they were not well liked by society on the whole. And, and notice that our, our boy Z, he's a chief tax collector. This likely means that he had a crew of tax collectors working for him, pyramid scheme style, the money funneling up to him. He's the El Chapo of Jericho, as it were. And look what verse 2 says. He's rich. Remember what Jesus just said back in chapter 18? How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Zacchaeus is in the most difficult position. He's a social outcast, hated by his fellow man. He's a traitor. He's betrayed his people in many ways. And the dangers of material wealth confront him. It's like Novocaine on the soul, numbing a person to the deeper problems, yet providing some level of immediate relief. Luke is bringing together the social outcast and in many ways the social enviable and setting him before us. What's going to happen? Verse 3, Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was. Why? Well, the text doesn't tell us. Maybe it was because he heard of this guy named Matthew, who was one of Jesus' disciples. He too was a former tax collector. And Zacchaeus is thinking, what does Jesus have to offer better than tax collecting? Perhaps in God's kindness. The lure of riches had worn off while Zacchaeus' bank account was full. His soul was empty. We don't know the full motivation. But I believe it was more than a passing curiosity. Do you notice what Zacchaeus does? He does all he can to see Jesus. Imagine the crowd anticipating the arrival of Christ. Throngs of men and women shouting in excited tones. Zacchaeus there in the mix desperately wants to see Jesus. But verse 3, on account of the crowd, he could not. Why? Because he was small in stature. I can just imagine in my mind's eye. The crowd probably enjoys boxing little Z out, don't they? Maybe throwing an elbow here and there. Sorry, little guy, didn't see you. But Zacchaeus, he wants to see Jesus. He might be small, but he's got legs. And so he runs. And he climbs a tree. Think about that. A filthy, rich, grown man climbing a tree like a child. He does anything he can to catch a glimpse of Christ. Just like we saw with the blind beggar just before this. What does it take to get into the presence of Jesus? Zacchaeus gets more than he bargains for. Perched up in the tree, Jesus comes passing by. Except he doesn't. He stops. He looks. Imagine Zacchaeus out of breath, sweating from running and climbing. Now Jesus stops and maybe beads of sweat on Zacchaeus' forehead. His palms are sweaty. The one he's come to see is now looking at him. Hurry and come down. 
this. I must stay at your house today. We don't know how Jesus knew Zacchaeus' name. It could have been divine omniscience. It could have been as something as simple as Jesus asking somebody in the crowd. But what's most important is this. He calls him by his name. He addresses him personally and intimately. And instead of condemnation, there is compassion. And notice Jesus doesn't say, hey, Zach, if it's all right with you, I'd like to come over today. Would that be okay? That's not what he says. Look at the text. I must stay at your house. This is sovereign grace at work. It is not luck. It is not chance. The crossing of their lives at a sycamore tree was divinely appointed before the foundation of the world. That's how meticulous and kind and sovereign the Lord is. See, Zacchaeus seeking Jesus really turned out to be the other way around. Jesus was seeking Zacchaeus. The camel, friends, is about to go through the eye of the needle. The miracle we just saw with the blind beggar is about to happen again, not physically, but spiritually. Verse six, so he hurried and come down and received him, received Jesus joyfully. Zacchaeus is joyful. He's excited. He's glad to welcome Jesus into his life, even though he knows to disrupt everything. He'll never be the same. Like Rosario, his life will no doubt look like a train wreck for some time. But the voice of God is singing a sanguine love song in the heart of Zacchaeus. He knows no matter what others think, his world will be put right again. And you see, others are not happy. They grumble that Jesus would spend time with a man who's a sinner. It's what self-righteous people do. They grumble when they see grace in someone's life, not their own. But Zacchaeus is undisturbed, the undeterred. The lavish grace of God is coursing through his veins, reaching every part of his soul. He met Jesus and he is changed. Verse eight, behold, the half of my good Lord, half of my gift to the poor. And if I've defrauded anybody, anything, I'll pay him back four times. We don't know the exact timing. Was it minutes? Was it hours? Was it overnight? We don't know. But we know meeting Zacchaeus, or Jesus and Zacchaeus meeting changed Zacchaeus. So in faith, Zacchaeus no longer holds on to his money as his greatest treasure. Jesus is. So he freely gives away half of his possessions. Unlike the rich ruler who wanted to keep everything and went away sad, Zacchaeus gives away half and is joyful. Instead of cheating people for their money, he now blesses people with his money. He's been set free from the bondage and idolatry of greed and becomes a giver, not a taker. Do you see, beloved? A converted heart is a generous heart. Regeneration yields generosity. What we do with the money in our hands magnifies the hopes in our hearts. Zacchaeus is living out his faith as he repents magnifying Jesus as a supreme treasure. See, he pays back fourfold to anyone he has cheated. This goes above and beyond what the Old Testament law would have required for this situation. Zacchaeus is cheerfully agreeing to do more than is necessary. See, Zacchaeus understands the true 
nature of repentance. It's not a rude intrusion. It is a lavish invitation into sweet fellowship with God. Zacchaeus knows that true repentance looks not just confessing a mere confession. That's not true repentance. It's seeking reconciliation and restitution. True repentance, Zacchaeus understands, involves our heads, our hearts, and our hands. With our heads, we agree we've sinned. We don't try to justify, excuse, minimize, or blame shift. With our hearts, we're sorrowful over our sin. We want to treasure Jesus as better than our sin. With our hands and our mouths, evidence of turning from our sin. Repentance involves all of it. And that's what Zacchaeus does. He repents, and by God's grace, the camel, did you see it? The camel just went through the eye of the needle. A rich man entered the kingdom of heaven. So we read in verse 9 and 10, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the mission of Christ, to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus, you, me, and all those who would trust in Christ for salvation. Let me share four things about this seeking and saving we see here in this passage. So Jesus seeking and saving is necessary. Remember what Jesus said to Zacchaeus, I must stay at your house. And that shouldn't surprise us because if we go back to chapter 9, we read this, the Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, killed, and on the third day rise again. This is a divine must. Left to ourselves, Jesus says we are lost. On our own, we cannot find our way back to God. To use a trite example, it's like those times you're driving, cruising along, listening to the music. You're impressed with your good time. You see that rival time keep getting sooner and sooner. You're really excited. But you never notice you actually miss the exit. Someone brings it to your attention. But pride kicks in. You turn the music louder. You press the gas farther. And you end up who knows where. That's what sin does. It disorients us. Taking us somewhere we don't truly want to go. But left to ourselves, we press in all the more. So we need someone to rescue us, to seek us out, to show us the true joys of life. We need someone to give undeserving sinners not just rules to follow, but a relationship to enjoy. See, Jesus isn't just a life coach seeking to inspire us. Jesus is not just a hobby we pay attention to when we're bored. Jesus can't be reduced to an insurance policy we cash in at death. Jesus is not one road up to the mountain of God as if there are many. He must stay at Zacchaeus' house, and enter Zacchaeus' life in the most meaningful way. And the same is true for us. He and he alone came to seek and to save the lost. His seeking and saving is necessary. This is the mission of Christ. Sin is our deepest problem. Divine forgiveness is our greatest need. Jesus is our only hope and remedy. So here's the question. Do you believe this? If not, 
as humbly as I can, I tell you this. Jesus has nothing to offer you. Those are his words, not mine. I have come, Luke 5, not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus doesn't come for those who think they're morally superior, but for those who confess their rebellion against God's authority, who acknowledge our sin. See, sin is like one drop of poison in a cup of water. Even though it's just one drop, it ruins the whole thing. So it is with sin. One sin leaves us condemned before God. That's why it's necessary for for Jesus to seek and to save. Maybe, like Zacchaeus, today is the day of your salvation. Maybe you came here today just to get a... I'm kind of curious about this Jesus guy. Why do these people come on a Sunday morning, sit outside, and listen to this weird man talk for an hour? What's up with that? But now you're hearing Jesus say to your soul, I must stay at your house. Will you come to him? Will you turn and treasure Christ? If you do, know this, secondly, that Jesus coming, seeking, and saving is sufficient. Did you notice what Jesus said in verse 10? Today, salvation has come to this house. It's complete. Today, not tomorrow. Today, salvation has come. And that's why it goes on and says Jesus came to seek and to save. He didn't say he might seek, he might save, he made salvation possible. No, salvation is efficacious through the person and the work of Christ. It is done. The work of Christ is sufficient, complete, entirely and utterly enough for all who would trust in him. Jesus is sufficient. His sin-paying death, his life-giving resurrection is enough to have a relationship with God. There is no other news like this. As far as I know, every other religious system works the other way around. Their idea of salvation is based on works. And because of that, other religions cannot say today salvation has come. They must say tomorrow salvation might come if you work hard enough to earn God's favor. How exhausting is that? You never get to come down out of the tree. You're always climbing. You're always maneuvering. You're always searching. You're always seeking. But wonder of wonders, Jesus shows up and says, he looks at you and he says, hurry and come down. Stop climbing up to me because I've come down to you. Jesus sought us and he bought us as he hung on the cross. What did he say, beloved? It is is finished. Brothers and sisters, let this warm your soul. Just call up another community group member this week and be like, can I just remind you that Jesus is sufficient? I just wanted to tell you that, that he's sufficient. Parents, can I make a plea to you? Remind your children often of the sufficiency of Christ. Don't let them think that their standing before God depends on their obedience to you, their obedience to God, what others think of them, making good grades, achieving their or your dreams for them. Remind them often of this story. Jesus is sufficient. 
He's good. He's sufficient. And he's sufficient, not just in what is done, but who it's for. Zacchaeus is the most improbable person to be saved, isn't he? I mean, everybody's looking at Zacchaeus like, ain't, ain't no hope for him. He's a social outcast. He's rich. That camel ain't going through the eye of that needle. It's impossible. But what's impossible with man is possible with God. Your sin might be great, but the grace of God is greater still. It doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter what you've done. doesn't matter what's been done to you. The seeking, saving, cleansing, healing, restoring grace of Christ is sufficient. Jesus moves towards the outsiders and the outlaws, the sinners and the sinned against. Will you treasure him? Jesus seeking and saving is necessary, it's sufficient, and third, it's personal. Notice the difference in the text, friends. What does the crowd say about Zacchaeus in verse 7? A man who is a sinner. What does Jesus say? Zacchaeus. Jesus doesn't just know something about Zacchaeus. He knows Zacchaeus. He knows Zacchaeus. And he calls him to his house. Like, I must stay at your house. This is relational. This must is not a begrudging duty, but a divine joy. For the joy, for the joy, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, Hebrews tells us. Earlier I said Jesus sought us and Jesus bought us. But it's even better. Jesus sought us, Jesus bought us, and Jesus brought us to himself. Jesus doesn't just want us forgiven. He wants us. Beloved, God is not sorry that he saved you. He's not angry when you come to him for repent in repentance, asking for forgiveness. Our Lord does not roll his eyes at you when you come to him in need of fresh joy because your soul is downcast. He's a devoted heavenly father who calls you beloved son, beloved daughter. See, all of us want to, at least two things. We want to be known fully and loved truly. Jesus does that. He knows everything about you. And when you come to him in repentance and faith, he loves every bit of you. He embraces you in his scarred hands, united in the indelible bond by the Spirit. I've been a pastor long enough and a Christian long enough to know we don't always feel this. But it's always true. Because our hope does not lie in a certain emotion. It's anchored in the explicit words of Scripture God himself gave to us. So rest and rejoice that Jesus does not refer to you as a man or a woman who is a sinner. That's the crowd. It's not Christ. Jesus stops, looks, and calls you by your name. Seeking and saving of Jesus is necessary, sufficient, personal, and it produces change. See, Jesus meets Zacchaeus where he is as he is. But Jesus does not invite himself into Zacchaeus' house to simply take his side. No, Jesus takes over. 
Yes, Jesus kindly and compassionately meets us where we are, as we are, but he never leaves us there. As one pastor writes, when Jesus says, I do not condemn you, it always leads to the imperative, now leave your life of sin. Jesus has come to save us, and in saving us, to rearrange our furniture, to turn our house into his house, to become the interior and exterior designer of our lives for the rest of our lives. And this is good news. Why? Because Jesus has good taste. His designs are always beautiful. Jesus does not move into your life with heavy baggage, ugly suitcases, and dreadful plans. He's a good architect. And his plan involves the rich, complex fullness of joy unpacked in your life. That's what he does. Is this process of change, what we call sanctification, painful and slow at times? Yeah, it is. But there's good news. Our Lord never gives up. He completes what he starts. The enjoying Holy Spirit changes us. This happens as we read, fast, pray. This happens in our community groups, in our corporate gatherings. God uses these, us, each other, beloved, the members of this church, to, to shape us into the image of Christ, that we might live like Zacchaeus in faith and repentance, joyfully, sacrificially, generously. And one day, beloved, we'll see Jesus face to face. And we'll be changed into his likeness, fully restored, living as we are always meant to be. But that day is not here yet. And that's why Jesus goes on to teach us this next parable. The work's not done. The kingdom hasn't come fully. So yes, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And he calls us to join him on that mission until he returns. It's verses 11 through 27. In verse 11, notice the two because statements. Jesus tells this parable because he was near to Jerusalem. He knew what awaited him there, death and crucifixion. He did not want his disciples to be disheartened when that happened. Well, what did they think would happen? Look at the second because. Because they supposed the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. See, disciples think that Jesus will be an earthly king. And they are correct. But their timing is a little bit off. They mistakenly thought that when Jesus showed up in Jerusalem, he would overthrow the Roman oppressors and set up an earthly kingdom. But Jesus wants them and us to know it's not a crown in his future, but a cross. He has come not to sit on a throne, but hang on a tree. So he reminds the disciples, listen, the fullness of my kingdom has not arrived. And you need to steward everything you have on my mission until I return. It's the main point of this parable. We're called to steward our life, the, the gospel, our mission of making disciples to seek and to save the lost until Jesus returns or we meet him. Those who are faithful will be rewarded. Those who reject Jesus as king implicitly or explicitly will be judged. That's what this parable is teaching. So in the parable, if you didn't catch it, Jesus is the nobleman. He is the king. He goes to Jerusalem. He'll be killed. Three days later, he rises again, ascends to heaven. He goes away for a while, but he will return. 
The ten servants in verse 13 represent those who take the name of Christ and say they follow him. Notice they each receive the same amount. Ten minas or ten minas. It's about three to four months of wages, as best we can tell. And then what are they told? Engage in the nobleman's business until he returns. So they're given the nobleman's money and told to engage the nobleman's business. We also have a group of citizens of the enemies. Notice they just outright reject his rule. Not so much different than today. Many people just outright reject Christ. Well, what happens when the nobleman, the king, returns? Verse 15 begins to tell us. The first thing he does is he calls his servants to him. They will give an account for how they spent and conducted business with his money. What do you have, beloved, that you have not received? We get a report of the first three servants. The first king turned one into ten. Thousand percent profit. King replies, well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in very little, you shall reign over ten cities. The second comes, he's made a 500% profit. The king gives a similar reply. You'll reign over five cities. Both of these servants have faithfully engaged the master's business while he's been away. And they've each been rewarded proportionately. What they did while the king was away affected their life for eternity. Same is true for all who follow Christ. This parable is not about various levels of giftedness. They all get the same thing. It's about faithfulness. See, all of us have been given one life entrusted with the one gospel message. And the thrust of this parable is asking this question. In what ways are we stewarding all that we have to join our master's mission of seeking and saving the lost? Or we might say, how are we making disciples that delight in the supremacy of Jesus Christ? Yes, this includes evangelism, sharing the gospel with those who are not following Jesus, but it cannot be reduced to that, beloved. It's about stewarding your money for the glory of Christ and the advancement of the gospel. It's about using your time to build up the church body to intentionally help others follow Jesus. It's about working with a holy ambition, diligently and excellently using your influence for the glory of Christ. Showing him and speaking of him as you're given opportunities. It's about relationships and parenting. See, no area of life is untouched by the gospel. And it's our joyful responsibility to to advance the gospel with all that we have. And I praise God for you, beloved. You do this in so many ways. You pray for the lost. You disciple one another. You work unto the Lord in all kinds of jobs. You support church plants. You go send and encourage gospel labors to the nations. You take risks. Some small, others larger, for the glory of Christ. May God give us the grace to press in on this all the more. And as we labor, we're rewarded accordingly. That's messing with some of you right now. To be clear, this is not about buying our way into kingdom. This is not about earning heaven. It's about the joyful responsibility and reward of increased serving in heaven. Did you catch that? You heard me correctly. 
the reward is increased serving in heaven. Now some of you are really confused. Huh? I thought heaven was just rest. It is that. But it's not only that. It's responsibility as we work with Christ and commune with him in unimaginable ways on a fully restored earth, sin completely gone, peace and flourishing ever present. Imagine working in an environment like that, beloved. And why is increased serving a greater reward? Because as Jesus taught, the greatest of all is the servant of all. Isn't this what he did? This is why he's the greatest. This is why his joy is full. See, it's hard to wrap our finite minds around this, that responsibility, increased responsibility, increased serving is the way to the fullness of joy. That's hard. But I think it's only because we're so used to the brokenness of the world, being sinned against and battling our own sin. But in heaven, all of that will be gone. The kingdom is so upside down, inside out, that our greatest joy will come as we serve Jesus more and more and we serve others more and more. See, heaven, to use an old Puritan phrase, is a world of love. And true love is about serving and giving, not taking and getting. That's why it's a reward to be able to serve others more and more. A life of serving Christ is the eternally rewarded life. Put that in your heart, beloved. And when the days are hard, read this passage and hear Jesus. Well done. Well done. It's what the faithful hear. But the life of rejecting Jesus is an eternally ruined life. Notice the third servant. What does the king say to him? Wicked servant. Why? Well, instead of being faithful with his money he was giving and acting in loving obedience, he acts in selfish defiance. He will not work for his master. He's going to take his money and stuff it in a hanky under the bed. Why? Well, he says it's because the king is harsh and unfair and severe. I don't know about you, but when I read this parable, that's not the picture I see of the master. I see a master who is given generously, explained appropriately, congratulated faithfulness no matter what the outcome was as long as they tried. And the king sees through it all. He says, you, you, you think I'm a severe man? Jesus is not agreeing with him. He's like being a recycle. Like, you, you think I'm a severe man? Well, if that was the case... Shouldn't you have at least taken my money and put it with a banker? So would I have gotten interest when I returned? If I was that severe and harsh? He sees through it all and uses the servant's words to condemn the servant. Notice the servant blames the king. It's not my fault. I'm not lazy. You're evil. You're mean. So while he may not explicitly reject the king with his words. His life proves that he's rejected him with his heart. The real issue is the servant does not know the king. He doesn't know the character of the king, the compassion of the king, and because of that, he will not work for him. Here's the point. 
We cannot claim to love Christ and take all that's important to him. His gospel, his church he bought with his blood, disciple making, and stuff them away. We can't stuff that away into the hanky of our lives, under the bed of our priorities, and then try to pull it out when Christ returns. As we've seen time and time again throughout this gospel and throughout Scripture, Jesus is either Lord of all, or he is not Lord at all. That's why Jesus ends this parable the way he does, with a sober warning in verse 27. All his enemies will be slaughtered. That's fierce. I hope that disturbs you a little bit. It's vivid. The lamb-like tenderness of Jesus in verses 1 through 10 is now matched by the lion-like toughness. Jesus is full of mercy, but he's not mushy. Jesus is full of compassion, but do not be mistaken, he is not a pushover. He's telling us a solemn fact. You will either receive him fully, serve him faithfully, and be rewarded in heaven with everlasting joy, or you will reject him explicitly, implicitly, and be banished to hell, the place of eternal judgment. Luke is pressing in on our soul. To no one will Jesus be neutral. Which will you choose, beloved? Which will you choose, friend? Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And he calls us to join him on that mission as we eagerly wait for his return. Heaven will be filled with unlikely followers of Jesus enjoying unimaginable rewards forever. How will you respond? Will you be like Zacchaeus? Will you be like Rosaria? Will you be like so many? Treasure Christ as the one who sought you and bought you and brought you to himself and then serve him with all that you have that your, your joy in heaven might be up beyond what you can think or imagine. For my friends, not trusting Christ. If you want to learn more about this, talk to the friend who brought you, come find me. But do not leave here today without looking at Christ and having somebody share even more what it means to follow him. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. And we praise you for your glorious grace given to us. All of us who are trusting in Christ are unlikely converts. Let that sovereign grace warm our souls, knowing that you know us personally. Give us the grace to steward all that we have, that we might have fullness of joy in heaven. Pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen.